Good morning, Riverbend. So glad to see you. Thank you for joining me for another gathering here in my living room. I'm praying for you. And as I've been praying for you this week, the scripture that just keeps coming to mind is John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And um, this is, of course, Jesus' words to his disciples right before he goes to the cross. And in the context of that scripture, he's promising to come again. He said, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm coming back so that you can be with me forever. And that's our eternal hope. That's where we fix our perspective during the time of coronavirus is that, yeah, there's so many things in our lives right now that are uncertain. Some of us have fear of the future. And frankly, a lot of that is understandable. But as we put things into perspective, we don't have to be afraid. We do not have to be troubled because we have Jesus who's with us, guiding us, and he's returning. He's coming again. And that is our eternal hope. So we're going to launch into a teaching from the scriptures today. And uh, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Father, we just want to say thank you that we do not have to be afraid. You're with us and we are so um, eager to meet with you right now. You have made us so many promises in your scripture to never leave us, to always be here. And so we really long for this moment to be a sacred one, to be a one, to be one where we sense your presence, and you also speak directly to us. You change us from the inside out. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and we pray that this would be one of those times where you speak mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, if you were here with us last week, we talked about this call back to life together. And today we're going to be going a little bit deeper into that same question, right? So it's phase one of organs reopening, which means we can gather in groups of 25 or less now. So that means a lot of our communities have started to gather again. So we've wanted to provide some vision behind that. Like, why is community so important? Why is life together so important to us, those of us who follow after Jesus? Now, today we're taking a little bit further. We want to explore the question, how does community become mission? How does community become mission? Now, my, we're, we're of the conviction that community plays an important role in the mission of God, and that Jesus wants to use you and your little circle of influence, your community, to shine the light of the gospel in a world that's in desperate need of hope, especially now in the time of coronavirus. I've been reflecting on this question, and I know a lot of us have been. How is the church going to be remembered in this time of coronavirus? How will the people of Jesus be remembered during one of the most important moments of our lifetime? This is a, there's rapid societal change happening all around us all the time. Will we be the kinds of people who bring love and hope and peace to the table that when people interact with us, they get a sense of the love of Jesus and how his gospel, how the truth might be life transforming for them as well. Again, I want to put this in front of you because your words and your actions uh, and, and all of that sort of wrapped together in community with other Jesus followers, it has impact. And our goal, what we want to see is that impact magnified for the kingdom of God. So, okay, back to that initial question. How does community become mission? So, um, I, you know, again, if you haven't listened to last week's teaching, I recommend you go back and listen to that one too. But, um, but like, suffice to say, community is, of course, it's for you. It's for your flourishing. It should be life-giving to you. 
and it should, over the long haul, sort of make you whole, a whole person. But Jesus, again, is the one who sets the agenda for community and for everything in uh, the life of a Jesus follower. But in community, Jesus always has his sights set beyond just those who are in the room right now. Like, Jesus isn't insular, right? He's his vision is always for the renewal of the world where everything is as it should be. And everyone is under his loving rule. That is God's end game. And so uh, there's this inseparable part of our calling as the people of God to be by definition outward facing towards a broken and hurting world. And we're supposed to be running towards the broken parts of our world with the light of the gospel, not sort of insulating or isolating from it. So community is not just about Um, the 10 of us and no one else. It's actually about the 10 of us on mission for the world. And that's an incredibly important part of our spirituality. So Robert Mulholland, in his book on uh, spiritual formation, he calls it an introduction to a journey. He says, our growth towards wholeness is also for the sake of others beyond the body of Christ, that the redeeming, healing, transforming love of God be made known in a broken and hurting world. And the ultimate test of our spirituality lies in the nature of our life in the world with others. I love that so much. And that sort of frames this conversation for us. Here's how we know we are under the influence of Jesus's presence. Here's how we know we're growing in our relationship with him. When our priority is on others. Our, our priority is for others. It's not just for you to know him and to know who's, who's, who's going to save us and bring us life. Think about this. It's not just you and I that have these questions about who's going to love us for real, who's going to, uh, where can I truly belong, and all of these deep longings that we have about meaning and purpose and transcendent meaning and all of that. Who can I trust to share my life with? Everyone, not just us, everyone has these deep inner longings. Uh, It's baked into our DNA as humans in the image of God. And we're again living in this really crucial time in history at the dawn of this new decade when the secular experiment is sort of in decline in the West. And we're also in this time of coronavirus. So we have these things converging in the present moment and God is using it. Uh, in order to get our attention, and not just our attention, but people outside the church, and get people to see him for who he really is. He's revealing himself, and we believe that there's a great power in this moment. And where does this power come from? Of course, the power comes from the Spirit, but a lot of this, a lot of the Spirit's power is manifest through the people of Jesus. It's you. It's you set on fire with the hope of the gospel, with the love of Jesus. Um, and all of this comes into vivid focus in our community when you are set on fire with the love of Jesus. So the way that your neighbor encounters the love of Jesus is through you. But it's not just you. It's through you and your believing community. And that's the point behind 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which was my long intro and segue into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Thank you for joining me here. So uh, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read several verses. So settle in and get ready to just meditate on the Word of God. Just as a body, though one has many parts, all of its parts, many parts form one body. And so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. 
Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. I love that metaphor. It's really, really helpful. Um, Let's keep reading. If the whole body were one eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. So good. But God has put together, put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, that the parts it, that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Man, this is so, so good and so important. So hopefully that scripture is pretty familiar to you. Obviously, we're not going to get into all the depths of it today. Generally, the idea is that we are all members of the same body. We play different functions, but we all have the same goal. And that's what we really want to press into today. So Leslie Newbegin, who is this early 20th century British missionary to India, he um, left the UK in 1936 to a culture that was completely unfamiliar to the gospel of Jesus. That was India at the time. And then he returned in the 1970s to a post-war de-churched Britain, who by that time was in a lot of ways defining itself against its former Christian values, which is the same basic secular experiment that we are in here in the Pacific Northwest. We're just like 40 or 50 years behind the UK. So Newbegin was sort of startled by this new reality that he discovered um, as he moved back to the UK. So he spent the rest of his life sort of writing and lecturing extensively about how to spread the gospel in a post-Christian context, which could not be more uh, vitally important for us today, especially in 2020, especially given coronavirus. So this is what he had to say. He said, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take into account for seeking a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. So this is, uh, you know, 70s language or whatever, but bear bear with me because it, it'll make a lot of sense here in a second. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of women and men who believe it and who live by it. Come on. This is so powerful. So he's making this case that you and me devoted to each other in a movement like sort of the Moravian Church, which as if you've been following Riverbend long, you know that we're so um, so emboldened by this story of the Moravian Church, a 17th century movement that sparked a revival out of a hundred year um, uh, prayer meeting and a commitment to brotherly love. It's the most, this is the most compelling thing that we can offer our city. 
is a devoted core of people praying together, loving each other, no matter what. And I think that the best argument for the reality of the kingdom of God on the earth today is not just a scientific explanation about the origin of the universe or the historicity of biblical events, although those things are crucially important and they deeply, deeply matter, and we happen to believe that they are true. I think that in a culture of skeptics, intellectual arguments are rarely the thing that really grips people's heart. The best argument for the reality of Jesus reigning is his embodied love through you to your community. It's you loving your neighbor really well and loving your community really well. That, I believe, is the most compelling evidence for the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead. And missiologist Michael Frost had something similar to say. He says that the people of God are the credible plausibility structure that the gospel is real. So in other words, what he's saying is that the gospel is true because we are living examples that it works. The love of Jesus is real and it's experienced and we can show you because we are living in this new reality. This is where people are cared for. Our needs are met. We're loved and accepted. We're not just individuals floating around in a larger society without any sort of meaningful ties to others. We are knit together as sisters and brothers by the Father. Um, So this is, of course, also connected to this idea that we were talking about last week, that we are being drawn into a story that's so much bigger than just us, Uh, right? So um, where else will will your neighbors experience and be invited into a loving loyal, self-giving, interdependent group of people who love each other like family until kingdom come. Like, where else can your neighbor experience that kind of loyalty, that kind of community, that kind of interdependence, that, that type of belonging other than the body of Christ, other than the church? There is no other movement like the Jesus movement because Jesus' love is unlike anything else. And I've been able in my years as a pastor, but even more recently in the, in the last year or two, I've been able to witness a bunch of people enter the kingdom of God, and it's the most um, invigorating thing on planet earth to me, to see people enter the kingdom of God. And in these past couple of years, it seems to me that it's always because the people around them showed them the love of Jesus. Of course, there was an intellectual ascent believe in the truth of the gospel. And there's a trust moment where they had a sort of catalytic experience with the Spirit of God and they decided to give their life to Jesus. Absolutely 100%. But the journey almost always involves a group of people who are loving that person super, super well. And so they're able to experience the love of Jesus. And quite frankly, that's what Alpha is all about. So what we want to do is just spend the the next little bit talking about how this works. How how do we actually experience this genuine love in community? And then how does that shine a light into the world around us? Okay, so two quick things to notice from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, Number one, this is, again, really a simple observation, but we are the body of Christ. For uh, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you are a part of it. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this is, of course, not a new concept to you. It's one of the most popular metaphors in the scripture for the church. 
But here what we're seeing is that Paul's making a particular point, that we are different parts that form a whole, and each part has a function that is crucial for the purpose of the church. Even though we function differently, we work in harmony to fulfill our common goal. So that means that we're not um, acting independently towards separate goals. We're functioning differently, but we're in a coordinated effort towards the very same goal. And that's why I think the body is such a great metaphor, because... If you were to think about athletics or if you were to just think about, for example, you going skiing on Mount Bachelor, which our season was sort of cut short this year. So we're all sort of uh, grieving that loss. But imagine with me that you're snowboarding or something like that. And all of your muscles and ligaments and your brain and your hands and your arms and your feet are working in tandem to balance you and to keep you from falling and yard sailing all over <laughs> the ski slope. And um, the body of Christ is meant to work in that exact same way, except the goal is not to stay alive while snowboarding. The goal is to be a part of the unifying of heaven and earth under Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. So again, look with me um, at Ephesians chapter 4, because um, this is a similar metaphor. It's the body of Christ metaphor again. Um, But he, again, Paul is making a very specific point here. So, Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Instead, it's talking about um, divisiveness and and stuff like that in the church. Speak the truth in love. And as we speak the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body being joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I love this so much. Now, we have to talk about how we've sort of interpreted this and understood this in the West, right? Um, uh, We've made this really individualized. We've individualized this text. And we've made it about us, which is classic American uh, sort of um, twisting of of a passage. We've made it all about me. But when you read this passage for all that it's worth, it can only be about us. It's about not just the maturing of a person into maturity, but the, the, um, the growing of an entire body becoming mature underneath our head, King Jesus. And so for when, as we're reading this for all that it's worth, it's encouraging because we generally overestimate what we can do alone, but we underestimate what we can do together. And that is Paul's point. Our full potential with all parts firing at all cylinders is greater than, the, than, than what we would first expect. It's greater than what we could do alone, and it's greater than what we would first expect. I, I remember this um, old experiment that was done, I think it was at like the turn of the 20th century, um, about how much a horse can haul. Maybe you're familiar with this experiment done um, about 100 or so years ago. And they, uh, what they would do to, to determine how much a horse could pull on his own is they would just hitch up different horses to different payloads until they found their absolute maximum payload. And they would determine, oh, this horse can pull, you know, whatever, 1,500 pounds or something like that. But then they hitched two horses together and found out that together they can haul more than the sum of their individual maximums. And then they hitched four horses together and then eight. And then they determined that the more horses you had together, the uh, amount of payload that those horses could haul grew exponentially from there. So there is this principle of stronger together. 
uh, and that has these exponential results. And I think that the same is true with us in community. I just really strongly believe that we are so much better and stronger together than we are as individuals. And that's the point of Paul's metaphor from both Corinthians and Ephesians. And um, we live in this moment um, where a lot of people are saying and actually spinning this narrative that the church in the West is in decline and that the way of Jesus is just completely doomed. Now, here's why I don't believe that. There's too many people who are just like you. There's people like you whose hearts are just gripped by the reality of Jesus as king and who have a hunger to see the kingdom of God come on earth as in heaven. And I believe that God is stirring this new revival, this spirit of awakening, like in the 18th century Moravian church, and that the kingdom of God's advance does not depend on the cultural situation that we find ourselves in in particular with secularism and coronavirus and all of that. It depends on the Spirit of God moving with power and the people of God who have this inner daring to take Jesus at his word and to radically live out his vision for life together by faith. And so what we need is not to have a a pity party about the church in decline. What we need to do is we need to recognize, we need to look around and we need to see that there are so many people like you who are on fire for the gospel and we need to come together, be unified and love one another well and come uh, come together to fulfill our common goal. We each have different roles to play, um, but we all have the same goal. Which brings us to the second reflection and then we'll be done. So just one more thought and then we'll be done. And that is this, we need a culture of honor. Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24, and then also 26. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there will be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. Right, So the call to honor other parts of the body is all over this passage, and frankly, it's all over the New Testament. So the problem that uh, Paul was addressing is the same problem that we have here in the Western church, and I really think that every generation of the, of the church probably had this problem to some extent. The individuals in the Corinthian church that Paul was writing to thought more of themselves than they thought of, than they should have, and not enough of the others. Let me say that one more time. Individuals in the church thought more of themselves than they should have and not enough of the others. And that's because we sort of tend to value the stuff that we bring and we tend not to value the stuff that other people bring. And as I've planted Riverbend along with Grace and our family and a number of you, we've noticed this hundreds of times that people um, will come to us and say, you know what? my community doesn't care for the poor like we should, or my community doesn't help the widows and the orphans like we should, or doesn't pray like we should, or doesn't invite others in like we should, or doesn't study the scriptures like I do, or doesn't show up for the practical needs of the other people. And and this is just one of the complaints that we continually get about community. Um, and that's because we found out last week, you know, everyone is sort of, uh, you know, in process together. So we don't want to have this perfected caricature of community. We really are in process together. And I'm a one on the Enneagram. I've confessed that to you a number of times. What that means is I always see room for improvement. So I get it. There is room for in- improvement in my community, in your community, in our church, in the broader church of Bend, all of that. But it doesn't um, often occur to people who make these complaints that 
Um, community is really good at certain other things. Like maybe your community might not have a huge emphasis on prayer together yet, but you certainly could. Um, and maybe you're really strong at something completely different. And the reason why a community may not be strong in a particular area is because they're passionate about maybe other things. Maybe it's hospitality or generosity or, or prayer or whatever, fill in the blank. But instead of bringing those things, they're complaining that other people aren't bringing those things. So here's what we need to understand about this is that if we see a gap in our community that you're passionate about, then it's your job, it's probably your function in that community to bring it. Not to complain that it's not there, but it's actually your responsibility to bring it. So, and that's what this passage is about. God is reclaiming the honor of what is typically seen as uninspiring or unimportant functions, and he's celebrating it. So wouldn't it be better if we were focused on the amazing attributes of the other parts in our community, celebrating the contributions that they're making and honoring them for it, rather than um, just complaining about what your community doesn't bring at the moment. Because again, if that is your particular area of passion, it's probably there because you're the one who's supposed to bring it in that community. So don't sell yourself short. Bring what you're supposed to bring, but honor everyone else for what they bring as well. Remember, on, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Honor one another above yourselves. Don't, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. So here's the question for your reflection. What kind of impact would your community have if we lived by the honor code of Scripture? In our culture that has this radically self, uh, radically individual, self-maximizing um, sort of mindset and wants intimacy without commitment, what kind of impact would it have on our city if we honored one another above ourselves? And I really think that that's sort of the story of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, um, sort of details out all the ways the first generations of Jesus followers devoted themselves to one another. And they sold their possessions, it says, and they shared with each other, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They prayed together. They gathered at the temple day, daily. All of these things that we have noticed are important about community. And then the scripture says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved right? So what, if we're not careful, what we can do is we can sort of look at that, that, that uh, picture of community and hold it up as an ideal and just sort of read that as, you know, they lived happily ever after. But what we have to understand is that in this historical context of Acts chapter 2, by eighty fifty, there was only about 5,000 people or so who were following after Jesus, and they were spread across all of the ancient Near East in little home churches of 50 or, or under. And then that's when things really started to heat up. By AD 70, the Roman Empire had started a campaign persecuting Christians. And there was, you know, you're familiar with the stories of what happened in the Colosseum about the emperor putting Christians to death and sort of... Um, you know, watching all of that unfolding, they were viciously killing Christians and they were refusing to fight back. It's this beautiful picture of enemy love. They didn't stage a revolt. They didn't hold rallies against the emperor. And yet somehow, 270 years later, out of that, uh, off, after all of that persecution, there was a movement where even the emperor at the time became a Christian and began following after Jesus, Emperor Constantine. There's just this paradox 
that Jesus went from being the shamed public spectacle of the most powerful empire in the history of the world up until that point, brutally killed on the cross, to being declared the God of that same empire within a few generations. So how, how can you possibly explain that powerful transformation? It's, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit through the people of God who are radically loving their neighbor, even when their neighbor hates them. And so this is so amazing. I think it gives vision and life to the church today. They saw themselves as individual parts of a much larger whole, and they honored one another, and they devoted themselves to, the, to each other, and the Lord added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. So, a couple questions for you to think on before we're done. What would happen if you had the courage and the inner daring to make serious promises to your community and the grit to keep those promises? What would happen if you had the courage and the inner daring to make serious promises to your community and the grit to keep them? Would your neighbors, the people in your circle of influence, would they take notice to that? Would they see that? Would, it, would they be able to look away without being changed? Like, would people be able to look away from you radically loving your neighbors and your brothers and sisters in that way? Would our city ever be the change? Would, would ever, excuse me, would our city ever be the same? I don't think our city would be the same. I think that our city would be absolutely and fundamentally changed if we had this sort of daring that the first Christians had to love one another through it all. And he's going after people. Jesus is going after people and he's bringing with the renewal of all things to all people. That is the mission that Jesus is on. And he's called us not to individually go after that mission, but to come together and to do that together. So I'm going to end with the 17th century Moravian church, which, as you know, has been an amazing case study to um, revival and also just seeing the love of Jesus being expressed in the community. And this is uh, what they had to say in what they called the brotherly agreement, which came out of a time of um, just dissension in their, amongst their ranks in the Moravian church. And they uh, essentially came together and wrote this brotherly agreement. And this is what they said. We consider it to be our responsibility to demonstrate within the congregational life the unity and togetherness created by God who made us one. How well we accomplish this will be a witness to our community as to the validity of our faith. That's amazing. And our heart is for us to adopt that same heart and that same passion and that same lifestyle. So get after it this week in your community. If you can't gather together just yet, find ways to be creative and to love your community well in this time. Honor one another. Remember, we are one body. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you so much that the thing that unifies us is you hanging on the cross, dying for our sin, and rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness raising back to life on the third day and giving us that same promise of resurrection. And now we are all your children. We are all part of your family and we are all one body, all performing different functions, but having the same common goal. So God, I just pray that there would be a powerful move with your spirit that comes out of this time of coronavirus as we commit not to pursue the mission individually, but to pursue the mission together. Jesus, we love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.
all right, now take the living room liturgy and go ahead and just spend some time reflecting on the cross and take the bread and the cup with your family. Um, grace and peace. We love you guys.